go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, I know it's always a weird transition when we have our kids leave, but I think it's so important for them to see us worship, right? Just to be here with us, just to worship, see their mom and daddies and, you know, people just around them just worshiping God. Man, that is so, so important. And, you know, it's it's very often that in church we want to separate all those things, kind of get kids space, youth space, adult space. But, man, it's, it's unbelievably valuable for us to be together as much as we possibly can work it out. So, you know, that it makes for transition and different things at times, but I think it's the most beautiful thing we do, and I think it's the most biblical thing we do is worship together. So, First um, Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 17. Actually, let's start in verse, I'm going to read verse 16. It won't be on the screen, but I'm going to read verse 16 and read down to verse 21 as we continue in our study of First Peter this morning. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy also. I'm sorry. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope Church, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truths that you present to us in it. Father God, I pray this morning that you would just allow us to be at a place and space here today where we could hear from you and what you have for us. God, hide me behind your word. God, hide me behind, Lord, the humility of the cross, God, as we lay down our fears, our doubts, our questions. God, we come boldly with those things this morning. God, accepting and anticipating you to reveal truths to us. Father God, we love you. Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So, as we continue in our talk about being outsiders, kind of on the outskirts of cultural acceptance and the cultural mandate and the cultural mindsets, I have to look a lot further this way and this way this week. I'm going to have to get used to this too. As we kind of lean into this, as we see as Peter continues on in our study this morning, he kind of doubles down on our conduct. And as we continue on through these verses and through these sections, you're going to see more and more specificity in regards to our conduct. You know, as we move forward, as we move further on, you're going to see for us as the church how we do some things specifically, how we submit to authorities in our lives, how husband and wives navigate that relationship, you know, how we are stewards of God's grace, and we'll even, as we get further on, how pastors and shepherds and elders function in the life of the church. So there's going to be a lot more kind of uh, specific interactions as we move down. But here, uh, Paul, uh, Peter, there it is. Peter, if you're keeping count, if you have your scorecard, there it is. That's the one time. Peter is going to continue to kind of double down on our conduct, reinforcing our call and the command for us to take active steps in our faith. You know, and that this is, our faith is reflective in our lives and how we live. And this is important. You know, because for us as Christians, this is something we get very distant from because it's not natural for us. It's a lot harder for us to be taking active steps in our faith that are reflective of the faith that we have. And I think this is the biggest problem in the church, and this is the biggest problem in how we disciple and mentor our kids or disciple or mentor people within the context of the church, is that there's this lack of reflection of the faith that we have. It's either a lack of reflection or it's a lack of of what's there and that something needs to be developed something needs to grow deeper ending last week we read it in verse uh, in verse 16 it says as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct i'm sorry verse 15 and you know when we talk about being holy and this is all kind of branching off of this what we'll talk about this morning when he talks about being holy we're talking about being different set apart 
You know, and, and I love that in verse 17 when he says this here, he says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially. And so that first thing, kind of doubling down again on the place at which we are in the life of, of the family of God. He says, if you call on him as father, that he is father. But not only that. He continues on and he says, who judges impartially. Now this is a word that uh, for many people, Christians included, we, we like to brush that word off. We don't like to think of anything judging us. We don't like to think of anything holding us accountable for anything. We don't like to think about anything that looks at our life through a microscope and analyzes not only our actions, but analyzes our thoughts, analyzes the things that we, we think about and desire on a regular basis. But this is the fact. And the Bible brings us back to this place over and over again, even in the New Testament, when it's talking about God and our relationship to God and how Christ plays into that and how our lives and the way we live matters. That even though for us, if you're a Christian here this morning, put your faith in Jesus for, for your sins being paid for on the cross, the way we live matters. The actions that we take. Because for one thing, it's not only us that it affects, but it affects others around us. And not only that, but in seeing things like this, how we read this in 1 Peter 17, is that there is a judgment that takes place. There is something that God is doing by evaluating. But for us, what we need to understand is that judgment is impartial, which is very important when we consider the judgment of God or the judgment of Christians is what we're speaking of in this moment. Because he's speaking to believers, so we're talking about the judgment of Christians, people who have put their faith in Christ. So this judgment, he says, is impartial. Okay? And so in several verses kind of reiterate this idea, even going back to Deuteronomy, back in the beginning in 10, 7, uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. And so when we talk about him being impartial, that there's nothing, it's kind of that, that idea of unmerited, there's nothing that we can do, there's no riches we have, there's no goodness we have that comes to the table that allows us to be judged any differently than anyone else. The beauty about God is it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, where you're from, we're all judged impartially on the same scale. There is no curve. We're all judged equally as Christians and as non-believers. That you know the, the 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 Christians are judged in a certain capacity. We'll talk about that here shortly. And then non-believers judged with different judgments, but we're all judged equally. On the same playing field. And that's very important because God is just. Romans 2.11, it says, For God shows no partiality. And I love even in Job, verse 34, uh, chapter 34, verse 19, Job talking about God. And what I think is significant about Job is in the midst of this, Job is going through his own type of trials and his own pressing and his own uh, struggles that are going on. He says, Who shows no partiality towards princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. You know, the equal playing field is that ultimately we're all image bearers. At, 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 at our very base, we're all created in the image of God. And so God judges us impartially on that status, in that place. There is no uh, but. What's important as we navigate this and what kind of carries us through what we're going to talk about this morning is that there is a focus on our deeds. There is a focus on our works and a sense of judgment on those works. This is something that the Bible talks about. And, and, and how this plays out, Christians debate on. But what is clear is that there is a judgment that comes to Christians. There is a judgment that comes to Christians. It's not an eternal judgment, but it is what, what I would kind of look at as like a family judgment. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of an evaluation. You know, you sit down with your children or you sit down with people that you're overseeing, you know, and we're speaking of it in kind of a family context, so we keep it with that illustration, but you sit down with your children as a mom or a dad and you evaluate. You, you talk through something they've done well, something they've done wrong, all of the, these things, you know, and we would love for every talk we have to only be good things, but it's not always that case. So sometimes we sit down and we have difficult conversations and we, we, we critique or we, we, we instruct or we discipline. And so, you know, what God is talking about in this here in First Peter, when he talks about this judgment, he's speaking of a family judgment because our sins have already been judged. If you put your faith in Jesus, our sins have already been judged 
through Jesus' righteousness. We've been declared freed. We've been declared righteous. So there's no judgment that happens in regards to our eternal state with God because our sins have been judged on the cross and we are declared righteous and good before God. Therefore, our sins can be held against us as far as our eternal state. But there will be a judgment, the Bible tells us, when Christ returns. There will be a judgment first on the church. First on Christmas, uh, on Christmas, on Christians, good gracious, on Christians, uh, when the Lord returns, the second, not that return, but the second return. The judgment seat of Christ is what the Bible calls this, or the judgment seat of God. So the first judgment is on Christians. There will be a second judgment, we're not going to get into it this morning, but a second judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. And this is eternal judgment. This is for non-believers. This is when Satan and those who have not believed or those who have not trusted but have chosen to trust in themselves and the work of this world will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And so that's the last judgment, but that's for non-believers. There is a first judgment for Christians. Romans 14, 10 and 12, verse 12 say this, for we will... We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's talking to Christians here. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of himself before God. So there will, will be a moment in a Christian's life where we stand. And what that looks like, I don't know. When that will happen, I don't know. But there will be a point for us as Christians where we stand before holy God. And we are held accountable for everything we did. Good and bad. Everything we said, good and bad. Every thought we had, good and bad. You know, and so when we look through it like through the lens of this family judgment, the father sitting down with the son or the daughter. You know, I don't know about you, and if you've had a, a good dad-mom relationship, or maybe you've had a mentor relationship that they could be honest with you, that they could critique, that they could kind of point out things in your life that you've done wrong or you're doing wrong. If there's true love there, you don't want to disappoint, right? Like, does, does it, it breaks our hearts to disappoint those people that we love, those people that we look up to, those people that we respect. And so with our lives, we live it in a way that, yeah, it's not perfect, but we live it in a way with hopes that I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to have a family sitting, a family judgment, and to hear the things I've done wrong. I don't, want to, I don't want to have to be disciplined. I want to be able to sit and celebrate. I want to celebrate the good that I've done for this person. I want to celebrate the good that I've done for the glory of God in my life. And so this judgment seat of Christ that Christians will stand, this is how it will be. You know, I just imagine in my mind projected on a wall or a video kind of slideshow, you know, at, at graduation, we're going to sit and watch this, and it rolls through these moments of our lives that we've lived out. And you know what? I know even already there are many moments in my life that I'm going to be like, God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. But I hope and I pray and I live my life to be able to in that moment and I pray that we as Christians could live our lives in this way that at the end when we stand before Christ we can celebrate way more than we're sorry. That we could celebrate and be so thankful that we led our children in this specific, this specific way. That we worshipped God honestly and, and openly. That we led others to Jesus. That we talked about Jesus openly. That we weren't ashamed. That we weren't afraid. That we didn't compromise on our beliefs for acceptance. And that's what Paul, uh, Peter is writing here to them as he's telling them. He says, God is going to judge you impartially, but He's going to judge your conduct. And he says, there's persecution. There's all these things coming in around you. But he says, remember... You're going to stand before a holy God and be held accountable for how we lived and what we taught people. So he's telling them, don't fall to this. Don't fall to the pressure of the culture. Don't fall to the, maybe the pressures of family. We hate the idea of that. But listen, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came with the sword. He says, listen, that, it may divide brother from brother, son from father, daughter from mother. Like There may be divisions that happen when we stand on the truths of God's Word, but that's part of what happens in this momentary life that we live that is only a drop in the bucket to the eternal salvation that we live in forever. And then we stand before a holy God because the greatest thing we can do for our families, listen, and this is tough and this doesn't make sense in the moment, but the best thing we can do for our families is to not compromise on the truth, even if it pushes them away. 
And we hate the idea of that. And I I hope and pray for even me in my life as I navigate some of those things in my own life. I hope and pray that that's not the case. I hope and pray that I don't lose my influence. But there may be those times in our life when standing on truth, standing on truth creates an environment where those people just, they can't. Because it's going to constantly make them evaluate, evaluate those things. And sometimes, especially when we're deceived, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to see it. I don't want to even think about it. And so they may run. But if we stand firm, when God begins to work on that soul, if we stand firm, you know what they're going to have? They're going to have a point to run back to. And then for us, we can stand at the end of time before the judgment seat of Christ and we can say, you know what? That person is going to be here today because I stood firm. We're going to celebrate because I stood where I was. Not by being belligerent, not by being deceitful, not by being hurtful, but I was just confident. Confident in who God is and confident in what He can do in the lives of other people if we hold fast to His truth. 2 Corinthians verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 9-10 through 10, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Remember, this is not eternal, but this is a moment where we will be acknowledged for and acknowledge everything we've said, done, or thought. So it's important that we take steps for these things and we navigate these things. And the thing is, when we read this word judgment right here, it comes with a, with a certain connotation. You know, we talked about it being a family judgment, the father dealing with his beloved children. The Greek word for judge here carries a meaning of to judge in order to find something good. A lot of times we can feel like we're being judged so that people are trying to find what's wrong in us. Trying to find something to accuse us of. Trying to find something to imprison us for. Trying to find something to call us out on. That's not this judgment here. When God judges us, He's not trying to find what we've done wrong for the sake of what we've done wrong. He's trying to find something good to celebrate, to grow from, to learn from. And so for us, there's three quick questions that I want us to ask. As we evaluate for ourselves taking active steps in our conduct towards holiness and being different and being a beacon in the world, not being like the world, but being something the world can run to, three questions that we ask ourselves that I believe affect the way that we actively live out our faith and our lives. Three quick questions. The first one is this. Where is the wonder? Where is the wonder? He says here in verse 17, he says, conduct or live out yourselves with fear. With fear. So when we talk about fear, when the Bible references fear in regards to our relationship to Him or our perspective of God, this isn't a fear that moves us towards weakness. This isn't a fear that moves us towards cowering. This is a fear that is more of a respect. This is a reverence. This is an acknowledgement of God and His might and His power. This is not from a place of a lowly peasant. But as the verse earlier told us, this said you are calling on Him as Father. This is that relationship that if you didn't have a great relationship uh, uh, child-to-father, child-to-mother relationship, and it's hard for you to equate that, just imagine as if it were good. Imagine as if it were perfect, and you respected them, and you loved them, and you feared them not in a sense of that you cowered in corners, but you feared them in a sense of that you, were, you respected them and you wanted their approval. You wanted them to be impressed. You wanted them to be, you know, enjoy the things that we were doing. And so he's calling us to this idea of reverence of who God is and this idea of awe and wonder in the hope and the life and the goodness of who God is. In Romans eleven twenty, Romans eleven twenty, it says, That is true that they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. And I believe there's there's contrasting things right there. Pride and fear. Because if we have pride, we'll never fear or revere or respect God. Because when we have pride, who's at the top of that pyramid? It's us. And we can never, we can never respect God when we are the center of the universe. We can't. And so what he's calling us to is this place of wonder, where we see God as something 
as something grand, as something mighty, as something bold. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears or respects the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Where is somewhere else that we've heard that language, hardening of the heart? We'd go back to Exodus, and we would hear that through uh, Pharaoh hardening his heart towards God and doing things what? His way. Holding on to things that weren't his. Wanting to do things to make him to be the God. And so he's talking about this idea of pride again where if we are hardening our hearts, not fearing, revering the Lord, then inevitably we will lead to calamity. The problem is if we are driven by pride, fearing and respecting our experience here instead of God, we will miss everything. Too often we are fearing and revering and respecting things here rather than God. And the problem for us, and I think this is one of the, one of the issues here within the context of the church, is that we've stopped living as if God is who He is. I mean, if we're honest, you know, especially in the modern church, we see God as... You know, whether it's through our music or whether it's through the preaching, God's just a motivational topic. Uh, God, you like almost as if he's your boyfriend or girlfriend, the way we talk about him, this very like humanistic, very lubby-dubby, very like light manner. And we've diminished him, we've humanized God to a point where we try to make him easily to relate to. And so we've, we've made him to be smaller, we've made him to be weaker. And even the way we navigate in our relationship with our kids and the value at which we put on the relationship with God or the church or how we serve within the context of the church is we've diminished God to be smaller smaller, weaker, more insignificant, less influential, less able, less valuable, or vital. And so then we ask ourselves, well, why aren't people flocking to the churches? Well, I would say that if we want to see more people become Christians, we need to, be, we need to see more Christians be Christians first. We as Christians have got to acknowledge God for who He truly is before we can ever convince anybody else of who He is. We have got to be living in a way, and this isn't me getting on to us, this is just us being honest together as we navigate relationships, as we navigate parenting, that we would be reflective of who God truly is, that God is mighty. Do we believe that He's the creator of the universe? Do we believe truly that He sent His Son to die on behalf of broken, rotten, wretched sinners like us? Do we truly believe that? And if we believe that, then it should influence and reflect in the way that we live our lives. I mean, C.S. Lewis said it, that, that the Christian faith is either nothing at all or it's the greatest thing, the most important, the most influential thing in the world. There's no in-between. There's no apathy. There's no place for Christianity to just be kind of on the back burner. It's either everything or it's nothing. There's no in-between for it. There's no, play, there's no room for it to be in-between. You know, and, and for, for us, if you've read through the Old Testament enough, then you'll know this. What is God's main focus in the Old Testament? It's preparing His church to be the church. In creation, He creates the church. In the fall, He begins working towards reestablishing the church, showing the church how to be holy, showing the church how to be different, how to show the, showing the church how to not be like the pagans and the unbelievers around Him. God spends, He gives them the law, He gives them instruction, He gives them prophets, He gives them all these people, all these things, not for everyone else, even though we see people like Rahab and others come into the faith in the Old Testament, but God's focus in the Old Testament was showing the church how to be the church. Why? Because God was using them, building them up to be able to go out. Listen, you can't clean someone else's house until yours is clean, right? You can't help someone else fix their junk until God has started work within yours. And that's not perfection. I mean, the church through Old Testament is not perfect by any means. God is constantly going out and bringing them back, going out and bringing them back. But his focus with them was holiness being different, being set apart, being a special people, a royal priesthood, as later in 1 Peter would say. Because what God is trying to do, He's trying to show us pure holiness and how to live, how to act, how to be different, to have faith. And like Micah, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 8 would say, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Church, he's called us to have that sense of wonder about who God is 
that influences our life. The second thing is this, that we would ask the question, where is your residence? Where is our residence? In verse 17, he says, throughout the time of your exile. Remember the word exile being foreigners or temporary residents, but for us being permanent outsiders. And so he's calling us back to that citizenship because this is very important because within this question of where's your residence, the second kind of sub-question is have you settled in? Have you settled in? Have you laid down roots where you are? Establish yourself in a particular lifestyle or space of comfort in the world because it's within that context when you settle in is whenever it begins to enforce and inflict change on us. You know, I haven't ever lived in a place this fancy, but I know that there are places where there's homeowners associations and all these things where you build a house and they tell you, this is what your house looks like, this is how your paint looks, this is what's in your yard, uh, this is what vehicle you drive, whatever it might be. You can't have this type of tree, this type of bush, you have to have landscaping. You know, all these things. You can't have junk in your yard, you can't have fences. When you move into these particular places, you lay root, they tell you, how you look and how you live. And so the question for us as Christians is, where is our residence and have we settled in? Because when you settle in, inevitably, you're going to have to take on the look of the neighborhood. You're going to have to look like it. It, 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 it never fails and it, it will not be different. You know, because even within the context of the church, you start grabbing a hold of certain things, certain mindsets, certain doctrines, certain cultural issues or social issues, and you say, I'm okay with this, I'm okay with this. Well, then eventually, they're going to say, well, what about this? Because we're all accepting of this, so you're going to have to grab a hold of this too, or you're not going to be a part of who we are. And so, well, we don't want to be rude, we don't want to be different, so we better grab a hold of this. So then where does it end? Because the association around you, the neighborhood around you is starting to look this particular way. So if you've settled into that, then you're going to have to accept it or become outsiders or move. He tells us you're, throughout the time of your exile, throughout that whole time, and we are exiles, we are foreigners as long as we live in this world because God tells us our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. It doesn't mean that we're trying to run and escape this world, but as we navigate this world, we navigate it with the understanding and with the desire not to settle in, but to be different. To live on the outskirts. You know, because when we evaluate it, when you look back at Genesis 19, we see a story of a guy named Abraham and Lot. It was when Lot stopped being a traveler. When Lot stopped being a sojourner or a pilgrim in this land, pursuing the promises of God, but became a resident in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah for his comfort, for his stability, or so he thought, it was in that that he lost what made him different. Because what happened is he began to inherit the mindset of the people around him. He began to be influenced by the culture around him because he settled. He settled in. He made a home for him and his family and this culture and this social climate. And everything that he had developed, everything he had lived for, went up in smoke. For us, we have to keep reminding ourselves that we are strangers here. And we're meant to be. We're meant to be different. It doesn't make us out to be in uh, active war as far as we're not trying to just destroy and dismantle and, and destruct everything around us, but we are to not settle into. We are preaching a different message, a different teaching, a different God than maybe even other churches or people around us. You know, as, as Christians, we've got to hold to biblical truth, and that's even going to set us apart in the church sometimes because the reality is this. The moment we settle in is the moment we submit to the world's leading, to the world's vision for our lives. If we settle here, we have to live by their rules. And listen, this is happening in churches. This is happening in individuals' lives. This is happening in the way that people parent. Because listen, whether it's dealing with family, whether it's dealing with people that we work with, or whatever it might be, it's easier to settle in. Because it doesn't put us in disagreement. It doesn't put us in opposition. And we've gotten to be such a culture where we don't like to disagree with anybody. We want everything to be hunky-dory, and we don't want to have places where it can be cordial disagreement. Like, I love you, 
but I, I disagree with you. And so the third and last question is this. What is your direction? What is your direction? Verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile or aimless ways inherited from your forefathers. I love how Peter does this. He brings all of this back. He's telling us, listen, you're going to be judged impartially. You're going to be different. You're going to live like this throughout the course of your exile or your status as pilgrims or foreigners in this land. But he says, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought from the aimless or futile ways inherited from your forefathers, this word ransom being paid for to to give us a fix to our direction, to buy back someone from bondage by paying a price. Another word that is used here is the word redeemed or redemption. This is used in some translations as a technical term to describe buying back a prisoner of war. So he tells us, Peter brings it back to this point where he says, you have been bought with a ransom, that you need to know this, that you have been paid for to change your direction, to move you from going on one path to the other, that Christ has done this for you. And I love just continuing on through that. He says, knowing that you are ransomed. And further down he says that you were bought not with perishable goods or things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. For the sake of you. He says he's done this. He died. He bled. And this was all established long before you existed for you, for your good, for your direction, and for you to be able to navigate a time like this when people would not appreciate or care for your message or what you have to say or how you choose to live or how you choose to raise your children or what you choose to say to them in regards to their Christian faith and their worship of a holy God. Romans 3.24 says, And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and according to the riches of His grace. And He tells us that this is all accomplished not with perishable things like silver or gold. Listen, we don't deal much in silver or gold anymore, but I mean, translate that to whatever it is that we depend on, whatever it is we find value in, whatever currency we use to buy what we have or whatever we drive around or whatever we go to that is valuable to us. He says, listen, your redemption, your redirection was not bought by anything this world offers you. Even non-tangible things like opinions or acceptance or comfort. He says, our direction is not bought with those things. But he says it's bought by the blood shed by our God on our behalf. And not only that, but he foreknew before the foundation of the world. I think that's so important. You know, for me, the life change life-changing kind of pivot moment for me was when the verse, and I've said this so many times, when the verse Romans 5, 8 really settled in in my heart. And I just was like, wow. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for me. That long before I did a single thing good for God, He chose before the foundation of the earth to establish a point at which He would die for me. Who am I that the God of the universe would do that for me, would do that for you? Despite what we've done, good or bad, this is offered for us. Before the foundations of the earth, every time the Bible says that, I'm just like, wow. Before the foundations of the world, Christ's death was not an accident. Church, it was an appointment. For you and for me, it was not a cruel murder, but a gracious gift of life given for sinner's sake. And we were saved for something. We were not saved to live like the world around us. God did not create a church, a people, to be like the nations around them. He created a sacred people, a holy people, to live, to be different, and to worship Him. You know, when they say these futile, these aimless uh, ways, He's speaking of a life lived trying to gain merit, the merit of God by works. 
And he tells them, listen, nothing can succeed with God on our own. It's only through Christ Jesus. Christ is our confidence. Christ is our direction. He is what we bring our children to. He is what we stand in this room and worship. He's the reason that we do ministry in our communities. He's the reason we serve in kids. He's the reason we do youth. He's the reason that we want people to know the gospel is Jesus. He's the reason. He is the direction. Romans 8, 2. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he tells us in 1 Peter 1.21, through him are believers in God so that, so that your faith and hope are in God. What is our direction? What are we navigating towards? What is our end game in life? What do we live for? I mean, that's the real question in our jobs, in our hobbies. What do we live live for? What brings us joy? What makes us happy? What do we want our kids to see as most valuable and most important? What I truly believe that Peter is, is bringing us to is this point where we understand that direction is Christ. No matter what the culture says or does, that direction is Christ and his truths and the gospel of him. And so the things that we wonder and that we, the, I'm sorry, the things that we evaluate are our wonder, our residence, and our direction because those things influence our conduct. And they influence our mindsets and it influences our motion. Quick physics lesson for us today that I don't know much about, but I learned about a little more this week. Isaac Newton's law of motion says this, that an object at rest stays at rest unless acted upon by an unbalanced force or an unmatched force. An object at rest is being held in place at rest by a balanced force or two forces working in opposite directions. You know, for this, you know, for say my book, for instance, there are two forces acting right now, the table pushing up against the book and gravity pushing down on the book. And so the problem, whether it's at rest or in motion, the thing that enters into this that keeps those things in constants or the desire to be in constants is this thing called inertia. It's an object's resistance to change, to do nothing or to remain unchanged. Because, like the law of motion tells us, objects tend to keep doing what they are doing unless acted upon by a force that is unbalanced or unmatched. And so motion is achieved when an unbalanced force is applied a force with an unequal or unmatched amount of force being applied. You know, the cool thing about Isaac Newton is, I didn't know this, but Isaac Newton was a Christian. And what I think you can hear from that is evidence of the gospel, right? That an object at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by an unbalanced or unmatched force. For us as Christians, we believe that by birth we are objects at rest. Or if you'd like to look at it the other way, we're objects in motion, but in motion in the wrong direction. And the only way that we are corrected is by an unbalanced or unmatched force that redirects or begins the motion. And that force is God. The unmatched, the unbalanced, the what appears to us reckless at times... That is the initiator of our motion, is God. And so with that law, Newton said that an object does not come to a rest because of the absence of force, right? That when an object is set into motion, that it does not stop going into motion because of the lack of force, but the presence of force against it. And this law would be the force of friction. 
Force isn't necessary to keep it in motion, but it is necessary to bring the motion to rest. When you slide a book across the table, that book would continue to slide unless there's a force working apart from it, working against it. Technically, per the law, you don't need force to keep it moving, but you do need force to stop it. The book slid across the table doesn't stop by lack of force. It stops by the force working against it. And so for us, I truly believe that there are many forces of friction in our life. And I'm speaking to Christians this morning. God has set us in motion. God has set us in motion. And the thing keeping us going isn't the motion. The thing keeping us from going is the friction. These elements in our lives that have been introduced that are slowing us down, these forces of friction, that many of them attack us at these points that we've talked about today, about our wonder, our residence, our direction. And so for us, the question as we end this morning, and I'll wrap up, the question is this. What are the forces of friction in your life contributing to the lack of motion? What are the forces of friction as a Christian this morning? As God has set us on a path, we know what's right, we know who He is, or we have known who He is, and we know what He does. We know what He's worthy of. We know what He can do. But what are the elements, the forces of friction in our life that are keeping those things from being fully realized, from being fully experienced, from me confidently leading my family into that, my spouse into that? What is that for you that is keeping that from moving. And I think it attacks us on those three points, the wonder, the residence, and the direction. And I believe that these three things, being a little more practical for us, are the forces of friction in our lives. And maybe this is just me this morning. But the first thing is this. I think it's traditions. And when we talk about traditions, I'm not only speaking of it in a religious sense, but that I do believe that also, but I'm also speaking of it in a generational sense. That we have been a part of family or people that have generationally lived or communicated a belief system, generationally communicated a lifestyle, generationally fall into a particular sin or addiction that has constantly put us on this carousel, generation after generation after generation of living, thinking, acting, doing things a certain way. And it is those traditions that are acting as frictions for us in our life and keeping us from fully experiencing who God is and what He has for us. Generational sin. You know, as much as we love and we want to respect parents and people before us, the honest evaluation we have to make is, is this a generational sin, a generational friction that is not accurate to what God has called me to and that it is keeping me from being in motion? And like I said, there is also a religious element to that. Where churches, denominations, even churches of the same denomination as us, doing things a certain way that maybe add extra biblical convictions or concerns, extra layers, extra elements of tradition in a sense that we hold on to, that are friction, that keep us from being the people God has called us to be. The second thing is this, expectations. You know, this happens when our reverence and our respect is attributed to our world around us, being driven by expectations of the highest valued thing in our lives. You know, we have this certain expectation of this is how we should act. This is how we should live. This is how I should talk. You know, maybe it's not so much external expectations, but maybe even it's our own personal expectations that rob us of life. You know, and, and I see this most with my men as we navigate being spiritual leaders, as we navigate kind of being bold, it's the fear of the uncertainty. It's the fear of failure. It's the fear that leads us away from comfortabilities. Like I said, maybe it's not external expectations, but maybe it's internal, personal expectations, our own goals, our own things that we want to do and see done, and we're afraid that if we eliminate those things, that it will set us in motion, that will put us in spaces that will make us uncomfortable, that will put us in spaces that maybe make us push back against certain things in our life that have kept us comfortable. 
And then the last thing is this. Persecutions. You know, the negative reactions, the lack of acceptance, feeling like we are on the outside of the norms or accepted cultural mandates. These can be points of friction. And I believe with all my heart that these are things present here today in the beauty of the Bible and the continuity of the Bible is being able to speak to us hundreds and thousands of years after these moments where Peter would write to a people today that I believe without a shadow of a doubt we are navigating forces of friction that affect us on levels of tradition, on levels of expectation, and on levels of persecution. The fear of being on the outside. The fear of being different. The fear of people looking at me and saying, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that about marriage? Do you really believe that about this or that? Do you really believe that? You're going to believe some book that's over 2,000 years old? Do you really believe that? And for us as Christians, we say, I love you, but I do. I believe this. I believe that God has given us this to see the fullest experience of life and godliness and what He has for us and what He wants to to do with us and through us and for us because at the, at the pace of eternity, these are the only things that will stand. Everything else will rust. Everything else will fade away. Everything else will be, as Peter said, futile, aimless, heading towards no destination, heading towards no kingdom. But God tells us everything here. We don't worship this book. Don't get me wrong. We don't worship this book and the people that wrote this book are not perfect. But I believe the truth in it are. And listen, that's the kind of church we're going to be. And I'm confident in that. That the truths in it are perfect. And that God calls us to evaluate the forces of friction in our life that are keeping us from the motion of our Christian life from day to day. And so this morning, if we could, I've talked enough. We bow our heads, close our eyes, take an honest moment of evaluation, asking ourselves these questions, as we could right now. That we would be really honest, God, where is my wonder? That we would ask Him this morning, where is my wonder? What, What is the force of friction in my life that is keeping me from seeing you as being as big and as able and as capable as you truly are? That you breathe life into our lungs. That you created us from dirt. God, that you made us with a, with, 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 a, with a word. You spoke creation into existence. God, what is keeping me from seeing you with that much awe and wonder and value? What is the force of friction in my life attacking me in that spot? And then what, what, is, what is my residence? Where have I settled in in my life? What is the force of friction, the comfortable place at which I've made a home, what I've began to be molded into the culture as we ask God, God, where am I? Where am I, where am I, where am I paying my dues? Where, where have I laid down roots? Where have I, where have I invested What community have I invested in? God, is it the community being shaped by you? God, or is it the community being shaped by the expectations of the neighbors of this culture? God, what are the forces of friction that are affecting my residence here with you? God, and the last thing, God, what what are the forces of friction that are affecting my direction towards Christ. Remembering what you've done. Remembering that before you we were living aimlessly, without anything, without any purpose, without any value, but the moment that unbalanced, unmatched force of God came into our life as a Christian, that you set us on a trajectory for victory. That you set us on a trajectory for beauty and value and goodness and grace and mercy and confidence and courage. What are the forces of friction that are pushing us away from that direction of that confidence that we lead others to, that we live in our church lives as, that we live in our communities as, in our families as? What are the forces of friction this morning that we would ask God? God, reveal to us those things. Reveal to us those things. Let's pray. This morning, Father, 
God revealed to us the forces of friction in our life. What are working against us? What are stealing away the confidence and hope that we have in you as we move towards you, as we navigate towards you, as we lead others towards you? Father God, I pray that for this time, as we navigate sometimes really difficult, really divisive, really kind of uh, challenging things, God, that the church would just always be that place where we can have honest evaluation, not throwing shame or guilt, but honest evaluation for the sake of evaluation and for the sake of direction. God, that these moments aren't just moments of, of soapbox speeches, but God, they're, they're moments that we know can truly influence and change people in our lives and our families' lives. God, I, I believe. I believe your message. I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit will change us and change people. God, and even as we imperfectly navigate this life, that you perfectly sustain us, that you perfectly keep us, but not for nothing. God, you keep us and you sustain us so that we can live with influence. We can live actively, not aimlessly, for you, for your kingdom, for your glory, for your goodness. Father God, let us be a Christian people that are not distracted by empty, worthless things. And that we would put value in those things that are eternal, that are beautiful, that are glorious. God, I pray. God, I pray that we would see who you are and what you do. God, that I would pray that if, if we're here this morning and there is someone here with doubts, with fears of what that looks like, God, I pray that today begins the day of taking steps of confidence that begins the day of seeking answers, that begins the day of, of, of finding their way. Because God, you've said come. You've given an invitation. You've started a work. Father God, I pray that that confidence would lead those with fears and doubts to take steps towards you. Maybe it's small baby steps, but God would take steps towards you. Father God, I just ask your blessing over these people. God, I ask your blessing over our responses and everything we do from this moment through the rest of our day and week. And God, that we would truly evaluate who you are, what you do, and live as if we believe it. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.